If you will stand with me, our scripture text this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes 11. Hear now the word of God that is holy, sufficient, and completely inerrant. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But I know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that you would cause it to take deep root in our hearts and to bear much fruit in our lives, that we might honor and magnify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only with our lips, but with our lives as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We have been on a journey together, a journey guided by our eminent tour guide, King Solomon, as he has taken us through the various aspects of life, pointing out to us the folly of life under the sun and the wisdom of life lived before God under heaven. And just as when you are on a long journey, perhaps you've been in the car six, seven, eight hours, as you get toward the end, as you come to the point where you are about to realize your hopes and dreams, so here at the end of this book. The pace picks up. Solomon begins now to show us the light of life lived before God himself. And so today I would like us to look here at Solomon's advice of how life of faith, a life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be lived. Because you see, this life needs to be lived now or it won't be lived at all. 
The life lived before God is not something we can consciously put off. It's like the old Elvis song, it's now or never. But here we're speaking about life and death, not top 40 or top 10. You see, the life that is lived before God is something that takes root in the heart of man. You cannot profess to love God. You cannot profess to love the Lord Jesus Christ and live a life that is apart from Him. And Solomon tells us it's not just a rote obedience that we bring in a life lived before God. No, the reason that we live a life before God is because it produces joy and blessing. There is no better life, Solomon says, than a life that is lived before God under heaven. And so what I would like us to see this morning as we look at chapter 11 is the life of faith as described by Solomon. The first thing that he describes for us is the boldness of a life of faith. That only a life of faith allows us to act with boldness and confidence, to live life to the fullest. And then, it's not just boldness and daring that the life of faith brings to us, but it is also the only true way to live a life of joy. You see, whatever the world may say, the truth is that a life of faith is a life of boldness and action and joy and contentment. Well, let us then look here at chapter 11 and see the boldness of the life of faith. Solomon begins where... We left off last week in chapter 10 with a series of a few short proverbs. And it's this sort of thinking that when you first look at it may confuse you. Or if you're a preacher, you may look at it and say, how in the world can I get an outline from this? You know, Solomon is the preeminent nonlinear thinker. He's over here. He's over here. He's back here. But you see, the more you look at it and you think about it, Solomon is going along in a concerted effort to point out, really, two twin truths to us, as one man has put it. The first is that life under the sun, life apart from God, is empty, uncertain, and unsatisfying. And there's all the subheadings under that, right? You can't find contentment in your job apart from God. You can't find contentment in your children apart from God. You can't find contentment in money apart from God. And the other twin truth is that even though life seems uncertain at times, that God himself is certain and never changes. And that is enough for the believer. And that allows us to act. And so he says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it After many days, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Now, this is not Solomon's attempt at being Smith Barney. Yes, when Solomon talks, people listen. But it's not because he's giving them advice on how to invest. Well, if you put a little money out for investment, it'll come back to you at 7.5% interest. No. What Solomon is saying here is far more profound. He's saying that life itself is uncertain, but that God is certain. He's saying something that we all know deep in our hearts, and sometimes we just try and suppress. 
There's risk to everything in life, isn't there? We're promised nothing. We're not promised our health. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised a nice retirement in Florida. Circumstances change. Things happen. And oftentimes when that breaks in on us, it is unsettling, isn't it? Because we're not sure what's going to happen. But you see, Solomon says, you need not be concerned or worried about that. He says, cast your bread upon the waters. And it will come back to you after many days. You see, God is in control of everything. And we don't need to be worried about the big picture. That's God's job. Leave that to Him. He's in charge of it. You don't need to try and control the big picture. God is in charge of that. You see, there's sort of a metaphor that Solomon's using here. Casting your bread upon the waters is similar to taking your wares, your goods, and sending them out on ships at sea. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us. We're used to sending things by ocean liner, or perhaps some of you have been on cruises, or we don't really think too much at sea unless perhaps there's a hurricane. But if you think about it, the Jewish people really weren't a seafaring people. There's only really a few times in the Bible that we hear about the people of God on water. One would be Jonah. Not exactly a fun trip. Not exactly even a good three-hour tour. Another would be Christ's disciples on the boat. Not exactly a restful experience. A third might be the Apostle Paul on his way to Rome. Now, I've just mentioned to you the two main ship incidents with the people of God, and both of them ended in shipwreck. You see, the sea was not something that was comforting to the people of God. They saw it as something to be afraid of, fearful of. And you see, Solomon, when it says in the history that he sent out ships filled with goods and brought back riches, we forget that that same text tells us that the ships went out and they came back three years later. You see, it wasn't a quick thing. They didn't send things by FedEx. They didn't get quick return. They had to have patience. They had to have trust. You see, Solomon says, cast your bread upon the waters. Send them out, we might even say. This casting is not a recklessness. It's not a throwing. It's a sending out. Solomon is saying, take life as it comes from the hand of God. Trust in Him. There's another way, too, to look at this bread. Because the word here for bread isn't just, some of you right now have in your minds, a piece of wonder bread. Right? Or maybe some of the more sophisticated are thinking about rye or pumpernickel. This word also means bread grain seed. Cast your seed upon the waters. And it will return to you manyfold. You see, that was actually one of the ancient farming techniques. It's what the Egyptians did all the time in the River Nile. They would take the little bit of seed that was left over and they would plant it. And, in a word, chance everything they had on the hope that it would bear fruit. 
You see, for the Egyptian, that was really chance, luck, or was an opportunity to try and cajole their gods into blessing them because they did the right things. But to the believer in the Lord, it was not chance. There was no risk. He was the one who has power over life and death. He takes the seed, an apparent wasting of resources, and he blesses it manyfold. And so that's similar to how we are to live our lives. You see, what the Lord gives us, oftentimes we have to do without with for a time. After casting the seed, you must wait for the fruit. You don't get instant gratification. We think about the parable of the sower. The sower sows the seeds indiscriminately. And he trusts to the Lord to spring up the fruit. Now, this isn't just a nice parable. This has rubber meets the road quality for you and for me. Do we view our evangelism in this way? Or are we devastated when at the first opportunity that we have to share a Bible verse with someone, that they don't immediately say, that's wonderful, I believe in Jesus. Can I join your church? Where can I put the money? That's how evangelism is often looked at today. If there's not immediate return in terms of numbers and wealth, we view it as a lost effort. We also are tempted to view our parenting that way too, aren't we? I know I'm tempted to do that. I have a biblical principle. And after all, I'm a pastor. And if I lay that out, I should get immediate obedience from my children, right? Otherwise, I'm disappointed. Maybe God's asleep. Maybe he's not involved in my family. Perhaps some of you have this same feeling. Perhaps it cuts closer to your heart as you are waiting and waiting for the day when your children, perhaps even grown children, perhaps even married children, would profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon says to you, trust in the Lord. Cast your bread upon the waters and it will return to you. There's application for us even as we stand on the cusp of a new ministry. Will we be disappointed if the building takes a month longer than we think it will? Will we be disappointed if people don't come right away? Will we be disappointed if we choose a ministry and it doesn't flourish immediately? Solomon says, trust circumstances to the Lord. Cast your bread upon the waters. You see, this requires a total commitment. We are to cast our bread. It requires trust that the Lord will, the text says, the Lord will allow us to find it after many days. And most importantly for me and for you as 21st century Americans, it requires patience. You notice what the end of that verse says? After many days. It's hard to wait many days, isn't it? But you see, that is life lived before heaven. The man who lives under the sun expects an immediate return for his action. He prays God better answer. He wants God better give. But you see, the people of God trust and have patience in the Lord. And it's this type of life of faith that gives us boldness to cast our bread upon the waters that also produces generosity. Notice the enthusiasm here. In 
Verse 2, which is a parallel to verse 1, give a portion to seven or even to eight. It doesn't say give something, give a little bit. No. It says give a portion. And the language that's used here is of fullness. Give a portion to seven. No, even to eight. Now, I'm not into biblical numerology in that every single number has some sort of hidden and cryptic meaning. But it is plain from the text of Scripture that the number seven is a number of completeness and fullness. Hence, Revelation speaks of the seven spirits of God. And so what Solomon is saying here is, give a portion to everyone. No, go beyond that. Go to eight. Go beyond completeness to eight. Be generous. Now, why would Solomon have this advice here? Is it because Solomon is running a capital campaign? I think you'll find it at the second half of verse 2. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, you say to yourself, wait a minute, Solomon. You're telling me I don't know if there's going to be a disaster. I should give away a lot of stuff. Isn't that sort of like the opposite of what we should do? If we're afraid there's an impending disaster, shouldn't we save? What Solomon says is, you must not be comfortable, not just with your money, but with your love, with your relationships, and with your involvement with others. You see, you don't know what's going to happen. So don't focus on circumstances. Don't give only because you have fullness. Give out of your lack as well. Don't give to others in relationships simply because they will give back or because you won't get hurt. Solomon says, no, you must be selfless. This principle is played out in Matthew 25. You're familiar with the story. Our Lord says to those, he says, When I was in jail, you didn't visit me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. And when I was hungry, you didn't give me food. And the response is, but Lord, we didn't know it was you. Have you ever wondered about that? And our Lord's response is, exactly. Therefore, depart from me. You see, the principle there is, if we give only because we know it's the Lord Jesus... But we don't give otherwise. Why are we giving? It's because we expect to hand to Jesus and get handed back tenfold. Right? It's selfishness. We see it every day in, quote, preachers who say, you need to send me money so that God will give you ten times money. You need to do this in order that God will bless you. You see, what Solomon says is, Don't expect a reward. Give generously. Because you don't know what's going to happen. Don't let circumstances restrict you. Well, faith produces boldness. Faith produces generosity. But faith also frees us from worry. Now, if you're like me, you will try very hard not to worry about things. You may even say to others that you never worry about things. But there's going to be something, it'll come up, I don't know what it is, that will cause that knot in your stomach to tighten. Right? It might be at work when you get a phone call. Can you come down to my office in an hour? I need to talk to you about something. 
It might be when you're in the store and you look around and only two of your three children are there. It might be when you get test results back from the doctor. You see, it's very difficult not to worry. As a matter of fact, it's a part of our fallen nature. A part of our fallen, rebellious nature is to be free from God, to be totally independent, to try and owe nothing to God. And so we think we have to take care of everything. You see, part of the problem with following Adam and trying to be God is that you have God's job without his character and ability. You're not in control of things. Others can resist your will. You do forget. You do slumber. And so that causes us to worry, to think through, did I get all that? Did I remember all that? But you see, faith, focusing on the Lord, frees us from this. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Solomon's saying something that's a good piece of advice here. He says, don't focus on the maybes or the might have beens Don't let your vocabulary be filled with coulda, shoulda, wouldas. Don't worry about these things that are outside of your control because that will always make for a good excuse for putting things off, for putting off action. You know, it's a testimony to the power of Scripture that this verse about a cloud and a tree falling is the verse that was used in the conversion of R.C. Sproul. Think about that. You look at that and you say, well, certainly not John 3.16. But you see, the power of the Lord's word is such that when Dr. Sproul heard that, if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. And he thought of his own life. And if he were to be a tree apart from God and to fall, he would die and rot apart from God. You see, Solomon is saying here, don't worry Because if the tree falls, it's because God has ordained it. He's in charge of it. The clouds are full of rain. God is in charge of it. You cannot control the difficulties of life. And he uses two opposites. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. What does that mean? It means something that's unanticipated, right? It's not that the tree's immovable. It's that no one expected the tree to fall there. So it just falls. What Solomon is saying here is, don't worry about things that you can't anticipate. That could take up 23 hours of your day. Can't it? But at the same time, he says, don't worry about things that you can anticipate. You look up in the cloud and you see, perhaps as you saw this morning, those thick black clouds. And you know it's going to rain. You're not sure when. Right, gentlemen? You see that? It goes up and you've got to go mow the lawn and you think, can I get it in before I get drenched? But you see, some of us live our lives like that. Seeing everything that's out there and trying to anticipate all of the permutations. And what Solomon says is, a life lived before God, a life of faith, trust these things to God. Verse 4 shows us something else. He says, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. 
In other words, don't procrastinate because of events. Don't spend a lot of time looking and not doing. And this is not just seize opportunities when they come up in business. For one of the saddest lines in Scripture is after the Apostle Paul has poured out his soul in speaking of God's righteousness and judgment, and Felix says, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. Come back tomorrow and let's talk about it. You see, he thinks he can put off God. He thinks he can put him off. And as we find opportunities, not just in the pragmatic, not just in the practical, but in our spiritual lives, we must seize them. That means you must seize opportunities to speak of the good news of the gospel. In your families, you must seize opportunities as they present themselves to instruct your children. You must seize opportunities to show your spouse the love that is to be a part of marriage. We must seize upon these opportunities. And as a corporate people, we must seize the opportunities that the Lord gives to us in ministry. We cannot worry about things. We must simply look to the Lord, trust Him, and to act. And our faith and confidence in the Lord removes our worry. Finally here, our faith, a life of faith, shows us our limits. Look at verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You see, faith doesn't remove our ignorance of all things. You don't need to be concerned. You're not the only one who, after you became a Christian, didn't have all the answers. You're not the only one that when someone walks up to you and says, well, what about this? You don't readily throw off ten Bible verses that instantly refute the question. Even pastors say, that's a good question. I'll have to get back to you. You see, we're not given all the answers. Faith doesn't give us all the answers. It allows us to live life in the knowledge that we don't have all the answers. We don't know when life begins. But we know, or excuse me, we don't know why life begins when it begins. We don't know how the Spirit comes in the womb. But we know that we are called by God's word, his revelation to us, to stand for life. This verse is a wonderful verse to use when speaking to others about the value of life. Do you have all the answers, you might say to someone else? Are you so certain? Are you so certain that you would venture life and death upon it? I don't have all the answers about zygotes and embryos and ultrasounds. But I can say this, that God says life is precious in His sight. That God says that in the womb He fashioned me. And so I will stand with the Lord, fully knowing I don't have every answer, but knowing that I am to trust in Him, knowing my limits and you see, faith allows us to act without being paralyzed by what we don't know. You see, some people think they're very sophisticated. And they're paralyzed 
with respect to the gospel because they get wound up in thinking, well, wait a minute, I've got to be elect in order to believe, and I'm not sure I'm elect, so I've got to think about ways in which it will show me if I'm elect. How can I find out if I'm elect? And the simple answer, which I've shared with you before, is Charles Spurgeon's, which he says, do you want to know if you're elect? Choose Christ. Then you'll know. Don't be paralyzed. Don't worry your entire life away trying to get into the secret counsels of God before you take an action of obedience to His Word. God didn't ask you to get into His secret counsels. He asked you to obey Him. There's a a famous line in which someone asked a theologian, The famous question, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? And then he said, you know, what was God doing before Adam was created? What was God involved with doing? I'm not sure. And the minister answered, he was preparing hell for people who have thoughts such as this. (laughs) Don't try to seek to get into the secret counsels of God. Obey Him. It's not success that God wants. He wants obedience. You don't know everything because look, in the morning sow your seed, verse 6, and at the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know what will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. A practical application. God does not want you to spend the next five years studying and trying to figure out where to share the gospel, so that you'll have 75% success rate. He wants you to live your life and to take the gospel everywhere, to be indiscriminate with it, to be indiscriminate with the love of Christ, to be indiscriminate with care for your neighbor, to be indiscriminate with lifting others up. He doesn't want you to focus so that you can say how successful you are. He simply wants you to obey Him. This is a life of faith that gives us a life of great boldness. And then secondly, and finally here, we see that the life of faith doesn't just make us bold in living, it makes us joyful. Look at verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. You see, the first thing that Solomon tells us here is that there is joy in life, but it's a joy that comes without pretending. Light is an image of goodness, happiness, and blessing. As others have said, our God is a God of light. He shines light upon darkness. And we see the light and we are comforted. And this light is sweet, not bitter. And it is pleasant or good. It is both things. It is sweet and good. It is to be savored with enthusiasm. I've said this to you before. The Christian life is not meant to be lived like this. God, obey God. Don't know what to do. Oh, no. Time to pray. Can't have this. Can't do that. Should really eat food that doesn't taste good. Show. Life in Christ is a life of great joy and fulfillment. All your relationships are crisper, more loving, more founded. All of your actions at work now have great purpose. 
Because even if you work for the worst boss in the world, the most miserable person on the face of the earth, you can work to the glory of God. Your satisfaction in work doesn't depend on another. Right? Where you live, how you live, is to be lived before God. And you see, this life of joy is a life that is not a life that is pretending. We don't go around and pretend that everything is good. Some of you may be familiar with the, the work of Voltaire, Candide, in which he points out or pokes, he thinks, at a biblical life by saying, well, it's just really kind of rose-colored glasses times 50. And that the whole book is a series of horrible things happening. And all the characters say, oh, this has worked out the best it could ever possibly work out. Because, of course, that's what they're supposed to say. If, if something's happening, God must be behind it. It must be perfect. So when a town gets ransacked, they say, oh, this is the most wonderful thing that could have possibly happened to the town. And then they make up things that would make it seem like a great horror would be wonderful. You see, some of us live our lives like that, too. We think that being a Christian means we always need to be chipper. And so we drive to church on Sunday, we park our cars, we turn off our keys, we put up our sun shield, and then we put on our smile that the Joker or Robert Schuller has. Look at me, how happy and joyful I am. I'm happy, happy, happy in Jesus. And inside, we just long to say to someone, I've just had a horrible week. Could you pray with me? You see, the Christian life is not about fake joy because light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But my Bible has more than that. Does yours? My Bible says, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. You see, bad things are going to come. Should the Lord tarry, death will come. And death is not good. Death is wrong. Death is, a, is contrary to the way God created the universe. It is a result of sin and rebellion. But you know, we need not fear it in Christ. The life of faith is one of joy that can face the difficulties of life and say, though I will face trials, though I will face struggles, though I will have pain and sorrow, my Lord is in charge. And he's written the final chapter of my life. And I know what will come. I know that I am blessed in the Lord. And this joy is a joy that we don't just have in our minds. It's a joy that is lived out. Rejoice, O young man, verse 9, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. What Solomon says here is walk in the knowledge of what is in your heart. Show others your boldness and joy. Show others your faith. And he puts it, as the Bible so often does, in both the positive and the negative. Because some of us don't get it after the first time. We need two times. He says, do this and don't do that. He says, walk according to your heart that the Lord has given to you. And put off all this vexation and harm and pain and evil. Trust in the Lord. 
Do all of this in the light of God's judgment. Because as you walk, the Lord will bring these things into judgment. And that, for the believer, is confidence and blessing. But for the person who's not in the Lord Jesus Christ, that verse is horrifying. You see, that's so often how the Bible presents things. It presents the exact same thing, and depending on your standing with respect to Jesus Christ, completely turns the way we look at it. It's like a flood that comes down and crushes the earth, but lifts up the ark. You see, these words are words of great comfort to the believer. But if you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, know that if you are walking according to the dictates of your heart, that God will bring that into judgment. You will not be the one person who escapes judgment. The text is very clear here. It actually would be better to insert the word the in front of judgment. It is the final judgment that is in mind. And you see, this doesn't rob joy of anything except, as one commentator says, it's hollowness. Because we look and see that we live in life. We live life in light of eternity. And joy is a joy that does not seek to hold on. Life is too short, Christian, not to enjoy it. Enjoy your children now. I know it can be difficult at times. Enjoy your parents now, children. Enjoy your spouse now. Don't put that off. What Solomon is saying here in the best and biblical ways is the old carpe diem. Seize the day. Live life. Live out your faith in light of what God has done. And see the great boldness and the great blessing and joy that he brings to you. Don't spoil the gift that God has given to you. Look to the Lord. Trust in Him. If you are living life under heaven, the Lord wants you to enjoy it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have indeed so blessed us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, this morning that You would affect our lives by this Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.